Hey, good morning, Pillar family and friends. Uh, before our sermon this morning, I have one announcement for you, and I'd like to interact briefly with two questions. Here's the announcement. It has to do with our Next Steps class. Two weeks ago, we introduced the newest members of our Pillar family, Matt Bryant, Cody Chick, Holly and Greg Harding, Steph Murphy, and Andrew Williams. And to them, I want to say welcome again to the family. We're really glad to have you, uh, have you as a part of our Pillar family. And Andrew, Happy belated birthday, brother. I hope you had a good day celebrating. So each of them participated in our Next Steps class prior to committing to our church family. During Next Steps, we introduce you to who we are as a church family. We talk about what we believe and why we have those beliefs. We talk about our passions, our commitments, and we talk about how we strive to live together as God's family of servant missionaries here in Okinawa. Now, throughout this coronavirus season, I have no doubt that some of you watching or listening to our sermons online each week are brand new to Okinawa, or uh, you're just getting ready to move here, and so you're, you're exploring some of the church families that exist here on island. Now, for those of you who are already on island, our next Next Steps class will be hosted this coming Sunday afternoon, June 7th, in one of our pastor's homes on Kadena. Now, if you'd like to participate, we do need you to, to RSVP with Beth at beth at pillarokinawa.com. That's beth at pillarokinawa.com. Also, please let Beth know if you need to attend virtually instead of in person. That's possible. Some of you guys are still in that situation. We can accommodate that. No problem. We're glad to set it up for you, but we do need you to let us know. So please RSVP by Wednesday, June 3rd, and we'll get you set up with our Next Steps class, no matter where you are in the world. All right, that's my announcement. Now, question number one. Here it is. Why is there a different pastor preaching nearly every week? Or some of you might rephrase that question this way, John, do you even work anymore? Uh, great question. I'll revisit that one on a Sunday where I'm actually scheduled to work. I'm not preaching today. Uh, one of our other pastors, Ron, is preaching. So let me just take that first question. Why is there a different pastor preaching each week? At Pillar, we're led by a team of pastors, not just one pastor. And on that team, my particular role, I do serve as the lead teaching pastor, which means I do a lot of the preaching, but I don't preach all the time, or even, I would say, most of the time. Uh, now why is that? We just have three brief reasons uh, why that is so for our church family. First, Jesus' fame. Uh, as a church family, we exist for Jesus' fame. We don't want our gatherings to be dominated or even shaped primarily by the voice, the personality, or the preferences of one of our pastors. Uh, rather, we desire a team of diverse pastors with diverse voices, diverse personalities, and even diverse preferences, and even some differences in our convictions, um, so that all of our diverse uh, voices and personalities and preferences point to the one true pastor of our soul, and that is Jesus. So we don't want anyone pastor elevated to that position. We don't want the church built around that person. We want all of those voices pointing to Jesus. We want to uh, share the preaching and have a greater number of diverse voices. That's Jesus' fame. Number two, the health of our church family tied closely uh, to point one. We are most healthy when Jesus is at the center of our gatherings. We are less and less healthy the more we are shaped by one leader's charisma, teaching style, preferences, and so on, if that leader is not Jesus. So, um, the health of our church family uh, is dependent upon how Jesus-centric we are in our gatherings. And the third and final reason really just has to do with the health of our pastor's hearts. Now, I'm not talking uh, about physical health. Preaching is physically draining work. Um, 
but I'm not talking about physical heart health. I am talking about spiritual and emotional health. Really, I'm talking about pride and humility. Being the voice that everyone listens to week in and week out can be a real source of or temptation uh, towards pride. And too many pastors find their identity wrapped up in the work they do as a pastor. They find their identity wrapped up in being that voice that people listen to week in and week out rather than finding their identity in Jesus. So to help foster a culture of humility among our pastors, we share the preaching Uh, giving me breaks, sometimes one week at a time, sometimes for several weeks at a time, like our current series in Galatians, uh, to keep me from being in the preaching spotlight for my own good, for my heart's health, uh, for my own humility, and my own gospel identity. Love to talk about that further with you, but that's really all I wanted to say today. And that's that's why you see multiple pastors preaching uh, at different times. All right, final question. Here it is. John, why don't we have a date on the calendar for when our church family will gather again in person? So as of this recording, Thursday, May 28th, SOFA members are not presently free to gather for worship out in town. That's just our reality. I had lunch today with two pastors from Calvary Chapel, Rick and Alex, two very good friends of mine. Uh, They will, as a church, actually gather in person again on Sunday, June 8th. And I'm pumped for them. I really am. But our circumstances are slightly different. As a church, they have a strong number of non-SOFA members who are free to gather for worship out in town. They have two worship gatherings each Sunday like we do and we can gather. They can basically fill one of those gatherings with non-SOFA members. And guys, that's just not our reality. Greater than 97% of our church family are under SOFA restrictions prohibiting you from gathering in person right now. Many of you have heard that most on-base chapels are meeting again this weekend. Again, that's great. I'm happy for them. And maybe some of you will choose to attend. But I spoke with one chaplain this morning and he said, uh, another friend of mine, and he said, while they will gather in person, they will face multiple restrictions this Sunday, today. Uh, 50% capacity for one in their facility. Everyone wears a mask. No child care provided. No congregational singing, because apparently masks only work for talking and not for singing. But whatever, no, no congregational singing. And your temperature will be taken out at the door. Uh, so that's a Navy Marine Corps context. So again, that's on-base worship, though. Uh, even if we implemented all of those restrictions, you guys can't gather out in town yet. So why don't we pick a date? The bottom line is we really can. I mean, we could circle an arbitrary date, but we simply are not in control of some key factors influencing that decision. So while Pillar Church as an entity does not answer to military authorities, more than 97% of our family members do. So we have to wait until at least a portion of you have been given the green light to gather out in town. Also, we want to, we, we want to ensure that when we gather again, we do so in a way that does not force any of you to choose between submitting to the authority appointed over you or gathering with your church family. Of course, we want to gather in person, but we also desire to do so in a way which honors Jesus by honoring the authority appointed over you. So we want to put you in that situation. We need to make sure that our gatherings comply fully with whatever guidance you receive as a SOFA member. So here we go. When SOFA, when SOFA communities get the green light, even like a portion of you guys, just a por- it could be by service branch. Who knows how it's going to play out? But when a SOFA community gets the green light, we'll give it at least one buffer week. In other words, if you all found out this Saturday or this Friday that you could get, you could gather in person out in town, we would not scramble and try to immediately gather the following day or that weekend. 
we would rather wait and make sure that we are set up physically to comply with the guidance that you all have to submit to. We'll make sure we're good to go, and then we will circle that date on the calendar, the, the, the closest date possible that we can uh, comply and gather uh, safely and gather a portion of our family, and we will immediately let everybody know. There's no secret plan. We're not holding back. We're not holding any information. You know what we know, and as soon as we find out we can move forward, we'll make things happen. We'll make sure we're in compliance for your sake, and we will let you know when we're going to gather. All right. Thanks, family. Um, thanks to Ron for preaching this morning. I'm looking forward to sharing that with the rest of you as we listen in and watch uh, via video. Thanks, family. Have a great day. Good morning, Pillar family. My name is Ron Coy. I'm one of the elders here, and I have the joy to present the fifth sermon in the series on Galatians that we're studying, The Gospel of Freedom. Today's sermon is going to be called Jesus in the Old Testament Gospel. First, I want to start with the story I heard from Francis Chan in his book, Crazy Love. He talked about a man, and imagine this, imagine it's you, a man who has somehow come across the opportunity to be an extra in a movie. And so you go ahead and you film, you're in there for about two-fifths of a second. Just your elbow or your head or your ear is in this frame. You know exactly where the frame is. You know exactly where you show up in this movie. Well, you wait till the movie gets comes out in theaters and you hire the whole theater and you invite all your friends. And before the movie starts, you grab the microphone and you say, everybody, thank you. This is the movie that I am starring in. Watch, you're going to see me. I am the main character in this movie and you're going to enjoy it. People would think that you were crazy, especially when your scene comes up and that two fifths of a second flashes by and you're there. I am there. I am there. That's my ear. Everybody would tell you that you're an idiot because that is so ridiculous. This movie is not about you. It's about the main part of the story, whatever that might be. It is not about you. But yet somehow we take something that's not about us and make it about us. Well, that would be, that's a silly story. But that's, this is how it is with how we treat the Bible and God. In the years recorded in the Bible, it shows that God has one story, and that is that he reconciles lost sinners and disobedient people to himself. How can we ever say this is about us? This is God's story, and we're fortunate to have this two-fifths of a second in the movie. Well, let's get to Galatians now. First, let me give you the bad news of the sermon uh, in this fifth, fifth sermon in the series. The bad news is that in today's sermon, Paul isn't going to say anything new to us today. It's going to be more of the same. The law doesn't save us. Circumcision does not make you a better Christian. Well, the good news about the content in today's sermon is that Paul says nothing new here. We get to hear it again and again that we're saved not by law, but by grace alone. We are not saved by the law, Paul, we get it. Don't circumcise. We got it, we got it, we got it. It's the same point that we're going to, we've heard in the previous chapters and one that we need to hear again and again. Paul begins his letter to the Galatians by chastising them for following a different gospel. And how the, tells, he tells us how the law enslaves those who found freedom and belonging in Jesus Christ. The Galatians added to the gospel, believing that faith plus circumcision or faith plus works, faith plus the law equals salvation. 
He argues again and again that this is faith alone that saves. Anything else is another gospel. When Jesus came, he changed everything in regards to the law. So in this chapter that we're about to look at, chapter 3 and a touch of chapter 4, Paul adds nothing new to his message, but he's going to do something different than he's done before. He is teaching us how to read the Bible differently. He's going to tell us to search for the bigger story, the larger context, and while he'll never use this word, but to look for the meta-narrative of redemption history in the scriptures. As I said, today, sermon, the sermon title for today is Jesus in the Old Testament Gospel. We can see that the gospel made us free long before um, just what we're reading in these chapters. We're going to look at the proper place and purpose of the law. And what does the law mean for the Christian today? It's an important question to ask. The main idea that we're going to look at today is that reading the meta-narrative, the big story of the Bible, we see that in Christ we are Abraham's offspring and heirs to the promise. And because of this, we are no longer slaves under the law, but rather we're sons. In the big story, and in Christ, we are Abraham's offspring, heirs to a promise, no longer slaves to the law, but rather sons. So let's just get started here. Paul begins the argument of Galatians by using an appeal to authority, his own. He appeals to his own apostleship. He tries to convince them that his authority as a leader of the church and the one who planted the church, that they ought to listen to him. Well, he goes on, and now here we are in chapter 3, and Paul appeals to another type of authority beyond his own, and that's one who holds even more weight than the Jew, to the Jews, and that's Abraham. Abraham is Paul's trump card in chapter 3. Abraham is greater than Moses, and since, since circumcision is such a focus point for the Galatians, Paul strengthens his argument by going back to the origin of this practice. We're going to read Galatians chapter 3, so you can turn there now, and we're going to break it up into four different parts, four smaller sections. So we're going to start off in Galatians 3, verse 5, and we'll read a few verses there. Galatians 3, starting off in verse 5. <clears throat> Paul says, asks, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing the faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We have this great line, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And so we see that we, we look at a bigger picture. What does that mean when one has the gospel preached to us? What does that mean? Well, let me start by defining this word meta-narrative. And if you've taken a lit class in college, I'm sure you've come across this word. Meta, the prefix just means behind or beyond. Nair is the story, so behind the story. A meta-narrative is what's the story behind the story? What's the overarching narrative going on in a particular work? And it, it, you would know this better if you think of movies. And think of a movie that has some type of twist ending or surprise ending, like Sixth Sense or Inception. Those are two older movies. Maybe I need to update my, uh, my stock of uh, examples. 
But think of Sixth Sense if you've watched that. You watch the ending, something happens at the end, and then you need to go back and watch it. And what the end says, it informs what the entire telling of the story tells us. And so we see all the parts of a particular movie framed and giving uh, more meaning because we know what the end is. And that's an example of meta-narrative. And we want to take that same principle and apply it to our study of the Bible. Uh, the meta-narrative of the Bible is the overarching narrative history of salvation, redemption history, where Jesus is all through the pages of the book, even when he's not mentioned. The Bible is one book with 66 different parts to it, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, 39 different authors, over 1,500 years of writing put this Bible together. Lots of small parts but one story. Now, we don't think like this as Christians. Um, we, we think of it almost as individual pieces. We, we love to find these great verses, and we pull these verses out, and we, we trumpet these verses as mean, great meaning for us. It's almost a micro-narrative, is that we take meaning in the smaller parts and not look at any context. I only have to say this one because you know it. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. Some of you listening, have, you have that tattooed on your body somewhere. And, and you like that. You think of it as like this, this is going to help you score the goal or lift more weight. And so you take this out of its context and apply it to whatever situation you're in. Or how about this one? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24.15. You can go to Hobby Lobby and buy that in 15 different fonts and put it up in your house right now and it just has so much great meaning. It's a great phrase. I'm not knocking any of those things. But we do this with just strange parts of the Bible. How, why don't we do it with all of it? How about Le Leviticus 13.40? You don't know that? Well, let me, let me help you here. Le Leviticus 13.40 says this. If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald. He is clean. All right? Amen. Okay? And so where's our shirt for that? Where's that on a coffee mug? Maybe we should get one. And so this right here, this picture is a micro-narrative instead of this uh, meta-narrative. We're just trying to find these small pieces of the Bible, and unfortunately, that's how we study the Bible, or that's how we were taught to study the Bible. But imagine if we took the camera and pulled it backwards a little bit and saw this big picture of what the Bible would look like. So it is incorrect for us to just think of that of the Bible as different stories or that our God is different uh, from this Bible. I mean, here are some ways that perhaps you've heard that there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. Jews were saved by the law, but Christians are saved by grace. The Old Testament God is angry and vengeful. The New Testament God is loving and kind. There is only one story in the Bible and that God rescues and redeems his people. That is the story. That is the only story told in many different ways. And this is what Paul is trying to reach out to Abraham to show his readers. Look for the bigger story of the Bible. And he does this by talking about the two covenants that you perhaps have heard of. There are two covenants in the Bible that come into play in Paul's argument. Now, look, a covenant is a, defined as a, a testament or a, a will, a promise in some ways, a formal agreement in which somebody has to do something or not do something. Paul wants us to understand what this big picture salvation is in these two covenants. And we're going to talk about these two covenants. One of them is the Abrahamic covenant. 
from Genesis, and one is the Mosaic Covenant, where the laws come from. These, one of the covenants cannot be changed. So let's take a look at the first covenant, uh, Galatians chapter 3. We'll go back to chapter 3, starting in verse 15. We'll read a few verses here, and you'll hear uh, Paul mentioning this covenant. That's really important. Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer becomes, it comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So we go back and forth with these covenants, one dealing with promise and one dealing with law. And so the Abraham covenant is a covenant of promise. In Genesis 15, as God called Abraham, and it said that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not only does the promise have an earthly fulfillment for Abraham, his son Isaac, other offspring, the land of Cana, but it also has a spiritual one. He will have the chosen offspring, Jesus Christ. Faith, then, in this promise, equals righteousness before God. In Abraham's day, the custom for sealing a covenant was a little bit, it is a little bit odd to our ears today. Today, we would, if we make a promise, we would maybe sign our name on a line or shake hands, and that would show that we have a covenant one with another. But in Abraham's day, animals... Cows, goats, rams, birds were cut in half and separated, so there was a path between the two halves of the animals. And what would happen is that the two parties would cut the animals, split them, their dead, bleeding carcasses all over the ground, and the two parties would walk between the, the carcasses as if to say, so let this be to me if I don't keep this covenant. Sounds odd. When God made the Abrahamic covenant, when God made this promise to Abraham that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, the God and Abraham should have been the ones to walk through this uh, bloody path together. But they didn't. It says in Genesis 15 that Abraham fell asleep. God made Abraham fall asleep. And God himself just walked through this path of bloody animals. God has this, the promise, the covenant of promise that only God made. God made it. It was a one way, not dependent on me and my fickleness, but God pursuing me and God making a covenant with me. Now, Jesus is the promised one that comes from, from this promise. It is, and this promise for the Abraham, for Abrahamic covenant applies to both Jews and Gentiles. At the time, Abraham wasn't a Jew. He was a pagan. He was a Gentile. Um, but Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's as far as the covenant for Abraham's part went. God did all the work. Abraham just believed. That's it. After that, he was circumcised. After, as a sign of, not as a condition for. Big difference. 
This is important because circumcision or following any kind of law has nothing to do with righteousness. We as Christians are heirs of this promise that God made to Abraham. Believe and it will be counted as righteousness to us. Paul connects to Abraham, uh, connects us to Abraham as Christians. We are Abraham's sons. That's why you sing that song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had to be circumcised before receiving the promise. No, that's not how it goes, is that we are sons of Abraham because of the promise, not for anything that we had to do. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Now, after this, centuries later, God makes a temporary covenant with Moses. Abrahamic covenant, eternal. Temporary covenant with Moses. This covenant is different. While the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, the law gave to Moses, the law that given to Moses had blessings and curses attached to it. Follow the law, God would bless you. Don't follow the law, calamity will follow. Throughout the Old Testament, we read so much about Israel receiving benefits and perhaps some punishment for how well it followed the law. Paul states in 3.17 that this new law, the Mosaic law, does not void the Abrahamic covenant of promise. In fact, the Mosaic law is the inferior covenant between God and his people. It's the smaller covenant, the temporary one, because it requires a mediator. Moses had to act between God and man, whereas in the Abrahamic covenant, God reached out and made a covenant with man directly. Abraham did nothing to, to earn his righteousness, didn't follow laws in that sense, but he believed God. And so we have these two, these two covenants the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, if the Abrahamic covenant is so powerful and good and better, then why the law? Well, it's good that you ask that because Paul answers that question. In uh, chapter 3, verse 19, Paul starts off with that very same question. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come, the offspring is Jesus, should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone, everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law under the Mosaic covenant will not save us. It cannot save. So why then the law? Well, the law condemns us. It shows us that we can't do it ourselves. Paul is starting to teach the Galatians how to read the Bible mainly through the lens of Abraham as well as Moses instead of just reading Scripture through Moses. They, the Galatians elevated Moses so much that they missed the greater promises. Moses had a covenant with God, but it did not annul anything with the Abrahamic covenant. So let's first start just what does the Abrahamic covenant not mean? What does it not do? What is it powerless to do? Well, the Mosaic covenant, the law, does not override the Abrahamic covenant. It doesn't add anything to the Abrahamic covenant. It's a smaller, temporary covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is not more important than the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is not more important than the Abrahamic covenant. To answer the question, why then the law? Paul answers that question, and he says it's added 
because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. So it is there to show of us our transgressions. And that's what the law does. We see a few things in the law that actually is considered a good thing. The law is not a bad thing. Paul is not condemning the law all through the Bible in all of the books. We often hear praising of the law. Well, the law increases our knowledge of sin. The law gives us restraint, guidance. It shows us our need for grace and mercy. And perhaps most importantly, it foreshadows a sacrificial system to pay for sin permanently through the blood of Christ, who perfectly lives out the law and all of its requirements. Uh, right now, we are going through, as a family, the New City Catechism at, at our house, and I looked up what question 15 was. Question 15 answers this question, why then the law? Uh, what's the purpose of the law? And the catechism says this, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts and thus the need of a savior. If you read through Leviticus, you will see the overwhelming burden that the law places upon us and what it seems like God would want us to do is to see that we are unable to fulfill this perfectly, but trust in one who can fulfill it perfectly in Jesus. The law shows us our sin and shows us our need for a Savior. God does not contradict any covenant in this way. If God had set the inheritance on a new system and taught people to earn their salvation, he would have opposed the promise but, and it would, have been, it would have canceled the need for Jesus. But the law is holy and just and good. It doesn't teach us to engage in the heresy that the Galatians were doing with legalism. It teaches us obedience that comes from faith and applies to the Abrahamic covenant to a new stage in redemption history. Well, chapter 4, Paul now moves us now to an, another area. He's tells a story about a boy who's an heir to a great fortune. And while the boy is a boy, he still is worth all of this money because this money is going to come to him because he's the heir. But as a boy, he's no different than a slave because he's a kid. People are telling him what to do. He can't make decisions on his own because he's a child. So he's living as though he's a slave, even though he's an heir to this great fortune. But when he turns of age, when the fullness of time has come, whatever that covenant was, then this fortune comes his way. Imagine if this boy, when the fortune, when the due time was here, the boy chose to live as a slave instead of receiving this great fortune. Living as an adult slave instead of as the heir that he is would be incredibly foolish. Paul uses this point to show that that's what the Galatians are doing. They're living as slaves even though the promise comes to them and they are heirs, but they're still living as a boy as if he doesn't have this great rich, rich, this, these great riches. For our final section, let's go over to Galatians 4, just turning the page here. Galatians 4.4, 4, great verse here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God had sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul's almost chastisement of them to say that you are living as though you're not the heirs that you are. When the fullness of time has come, Jesus comes into the world and redeems us while we were under the law. And the word redemption means to buy back from slavery. So Jesus buys us out of this slavery and gives us the air of being a promise, a child of God, an heir. And we're saying, no, we kind of like the slavery thing. Let's continue on with that. Well, with these two covenants, both the Abrahamic and the Mosaic, Jesus fulfills them all perfectly. He's the seed promised to Abraham, and he's the perfect fulfillment of the law, of the Mosaic law. He lived a perfect life following every law that God requires for holiness. And when he dies on the cross, the great imputation happens, is that our righteousness is now applied, his righteousness is applied to us, and our sin is applied to him. And so Jesus, when we talk about Jesus dying for our sins, sometimes that's a phrase that we just utter because it's the right Christian thing to say. But for Jesus to die for our sins, he took my slave clothes and put them on him. And we took his clothes as a son, as an heir of a child of promise and put them on us. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as, righteous, as, as righteousness. That's what happens when we say Jesus died for our sins. God's story, then, is that we live by faith, and that's credited to us as righteousness. We are righteous because the righteous one and the only righteous one died in our place to make us righteous. So when, we, when Paul is talking about stopping trying to earn your righteousness, this is what he means. It's a foolish endeavor to try to earn our righteousness. We can't do it. We are going to fail. In our own strength, we can never do it. Jesus' righteousness covers all of our sins, all of our greed, our lust, our pride, our anger, our indifference. Jesus' sacrifice covers all of that. But somehow, the Galatians, Christians today, me on many days, is that I'm fighting to try harder. I'm going to try harder. If I just try harder, I can get past this. I can be more righteous if I try harder. We need to know that it is not our feeble attempts toward perfection, but only Christ's righteousness that brings us salvation. This is what it means to be a child of promise. The law shows us the need for our need of a Savior. Christ delivers our righteousness. The theologian John Stott puts it this way, we cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have first been to Moses to be condemned. But once we have gone to Moses and acknowledge our sin, guilt, and condemnation, we must not stay there. We must let Moses send us to Christ. Are we doing that? When, when you read the law and all of the burdens of the law, whether it's all of the, the Pentateuch or whether we just look at those Ten Commandments, when you look at that, do you feel the burden if you feel the burden that you can never measure up, you can never be good enough, you can never do it on your own, you're in a good place. You're in part of God's story in that because that's the place we want to be. We want to see through the law represented by Moses that we can't do this. We stand condemned before God. However, being with Moses should send us to Christ. 
and pleading for Christ and his righteousness to be applied to us. And this is what the beauty of the gospel is. We cannot brag on our own merit then. Uh, we can't say that we, there are hierarchy, hierarchies of Christians in, the, in a church, that these people are more saved than others because they do certain things. Nobody does anything for their salvation. And so there is no us and them, better Christian, worse Christian. We can't say that we're better because we're in uh, paid service in a church or we're in the front of the church doing things or we're better than people who aren't working in the children's church or you put whatever kinds of hierarchies you can on this. It's all foolishness because none of us earns this righteousness. And so our response would be gratitude toward Jesus and brotherhood and sisterhood with our fellow people in church. Well, I started this idea of the meta-narrative in the Bible at the beginning of the sermon. There's one story of redemption, and we can see this really well with the tree in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 all the way to the end of the tree of life in Revelation 22. There is God's story from seed to shining tree, in this case, uh, two trees bookend God's story of salvation for his people. This is what Paul is telling the Galatians. Get a bigger picture of your salvation. Stop looking just at foreskin. Look at the thread throughout the Bible and of history. Look there for the salvation. Are you seeking the bigger picture of salvation? We make mistakes when we just look at a verse and interpret it just as it's on face value by itself without context. We miss the bigger story. And so I want to show you a couple of things that I use to help with the bigger story, uh, perhaps can offer you some uh, some help. One of them is D.A. Carson's book, The God Who Is There. The subtitle is Finding Your Place in God's Story. It's a great place to start. Um, I had mentioned already uh, the New City Catechism that we're going through. Real easy. It's just It helps organize truths of the Bible in a systematic way. It's a good way to start to look at that. A lot of you have this, the Jesus Storybook Bible. We've used it at Pillar in uh, Children's Church. Uh, it's just a great way to see every story of the Bible, how it points to Jesus. The subtitle of this is Every Story Whispers His Name, and it's just a great way to start. And probably the, my favorite of all, and it's not because it's heavy, but the ESV Study Bible, and not so much because of the ESV-ness of it, but the study notes in here are so powerful the beginnings of books and beginnings of chapters, just the study notes will always point us back to the bigger picture of the, of the story of the gospel. In each of the books, they have something called a history of redemption summary. And that just helps you see how this particular book, even it's, if it's an obscure book that you don't really hear about often, how this book adds to the story, God's big story. So maybe those resources might help you. But the, remember, the promise of Abraham doesn't just end with our being made righteous, although that would be more than enough if we were justified and righteous, but we're also made sons. God's story is reaching in and rescuing lost people, whether that's Abraham, Moses, Paul, me, you. That is God's story. And what do we have to do to earn this sonship, this heir to the promise? The text says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what we do. Can we believe God in what he says 
That's where our righteousness comes from. God made a covenant with his people. However, unlike killing and splitting the animal to ensure its adherence, God sent his son to the slaughter. Jesus was killed and Jesus' blood shed as a term for this new covenant. Jesus' blood is the promise for all of us. Now that story is God's story and that story is way better than any story about me. Thanks, Pillar. Welcome back, Pillar. And I wanted to introduce to you one of our members, Lauren Dalton. She's been with us here at Pillar for eight months and I brought her on here to uh, have her share a bit of her story and to work through some questions and resources that she has for us. So welcome, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So why don't you start off telling us, just introduce yourself and then tell us what it's like in MC during this period in coronavirus. It's, we've heard it from a few people in the past week, so let's hear your perspective. Yeah, thank you. I do really appreciate this question. I've really enjoyed hearing each week how our family is pressing into their savior as well as their community in this harder season. For my husband, Ethan, and I, this is actually our first deployment. Ethan is away right now. Um, we're new to the military as well as new to marriage. So this is definitely um, an interesting season for us. And so learning how to love and pursue each other in this time has certainly been a challenge, but it's also been filled with so much richness. One of the harder things about being physically alone in the midst of COVID-19 is really seeing how many idols and fears have been unearthed in my own heart. I'm learning the ways that the Lord is calling me to fully depend on Him. And this is especially true in those ways where I'm actually tempted to depend first on Ethan rather than depending first on the Lord. Mm. And secondly, and probably most importantly for this current season of my life, is I really have found great comfort as I've learned to surrender my fears of being alone um, to my great comforter and protector, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And so Ethan, my husband, has been such a gift to me in this season. Um, and I do have to say that um, he has led our family so well, even from um, where he is deployed. He continually encourages us to seek after Christ. And ultimately, and most comforting for me, he encourages me to find my safety. In, in God. But one of the unexpected gifts of this season in the midst of being alone with a husband deployed in the midst of a pandemic is having an abundance of time. And so that really has been a gift. And so I've really been grateful for all of the ways that I've been able to pour my time really into studying scripture, into pursuing friendships, whether it's here in Okinawa or back in the States, and then seeking creatively to find ways to serve our church family, um, even in the midst of all of the restrictions that we're, that we're kind of facing as members of the military here in, in Japan. As for our MC, I am grateful to be a part of the Sutherlands MC. And so throughout COVID-19, we've been Zooming every Sunday morning to rehearse the gospel, to take communion, and to discuss the sermon. And so this has really been one of the highlights of my week um, because it is such a sweet opportunity to gather with my church family in a time where my family, my husband, is physically away from me and from our home. 
and we also have a girls chat that we use to communicate and encourage each other with throughout the week. Um, but the great news is, is that last week we actually had the opportunity to split into a couple of different homes to share a meal together and to rehearse the gospel. And so it really has been such a tremendous blessing to see Christ fulfill his promises, specifically the promise of giving us family, even in the midst of living overseas in a mm, pandemic. That's really good. Everything you said was really good. I like especially that you're someone who's relatively new, eight months. <laughs> I mean, it's still within the newness, but you have jumped headlong into Pillar. Before the door is closed, uh, <laughs> the building closed, and even now you're really involved, and you're a great model for that. And if you don't know Lauren, like her... Energy and enthusiasm is quite infectious. So uh, I'm sure you know her because she's so friendly to everybody. Um, well, you also, you, you said that in your MC you talk about the questions, and now you get a chance to write the questions. <laughs> I do. So I'm really eager to, to talk about these with you. Uh, Lauren has created four questions for MCs, and we're doing something different this, this time. We're trying something. Uh, at the end of this video, we're going to put a slide up with all these questions. So you don't feel, don't feel like you need to write these down at the moment. You still have received the email with the questions. You'll still get that. But it might just be easier for those who are meeting in groups together is that after the video is over, you can pause it on the slide with, with all the questions. So why don't we start off, Lauren, start off, give us, give us a good question here and uh, we'll talk about that. Absolutely. So Ron, at the beginning of your sermon, you graciously reminded us that the Bible is a story about God and that we are fortunate to have our two-fifths of a second in his movie. And so my question to the MCs and to each member of the MC would be, how are you tempted to make yourself the center of God's story? I want you to discuss with your MC how you can work towards reorienting your heart and your mind to see scripture first as a story about God and then, and only secondly, a story about us, his redeemed creation. That's a great one. <laughs> yeah, let's hear the second. Absolutely. So the second question, Ron, you exhorted us to truly and thoughtfully reflect on the phrase that Jesus died for my sins. This is a rich truth, and we ought to take great care to remember its meaning and its significance. And so to the MCs, I would encourage you now to take a few moments to rehearse the gospel together and remind each other what it really means for each of us to say that Jesus died for our sins. Yeah, that right there could be a great meeting time it of discussion. Be, it could be. <clears throat> and then the third question, so towards the end of the sermon, Ron, you shared this poignant phrase. You said, we need to know that it is not our feeble efforts towards perfection, but only Christ's righteousness that makes us children of the promise. And further, try harder is a phrase that should no longer be in the Christian's vocabulary. And so my question to the MCs is, in what area of your life have you been striving to try harder? And how does the glorious truth of Jesus' fulfillment of the law free you to follow him and walk in obedience? And then my final and fourth question, um, in just a moment, you and I are actually going to discuss some further resources for better understanding the big story of the Bible. And so once you hear those resources, my question to the MCs is, do you feel like you have a solid grasp on, the, on this wonderful story? 
Are there any gaps in the story that you want to fill in, either from your own knowledge of scripture or maybe some of the discussion about covenants and Moses and Abraham that Ron discussed today? Maybe you don't have a full understanding of what that means and what role those men play in the story of, of God's redemption. And so we would encourage you to discuss if any of these resources appeal to you and maybe if there are any in particular that you would like to begin using in your personal walk with the Lord or as you lead your family to understand the big story of scripture. Well, why don't we just start right there? Let, let's hear some of those. Unlike other weeks, um, the, our, whoever the guest is, is giving us the questions, and we usually have, have gone through the same rhythm. However, Lauren stepped it up a notch. Uh, she's coming in with some good resources for us, and like uh, the questions, you'll also get a link to these resources. And Lauren has kind of put together, called together a, a nice collection. So let's hear some of them. Absolutely. So Ron, I would be remiss without first suggesting, as you did, that the best and the easiest way to understand the big story of the Bible is to read through the Bible. And I know this may sound obvious, but there is no single book on earth that can give us a better understanding of God's story than his very word. Mm -hmm. But I know that reading through the Bible can be intimidating. It is a big book and it can be hard to read if you don't really know where to start. Mm -hmm. And so I have two suggestions that I would like to offer Great. for someone who's considering reading through the Bible. The first would be to find a Bible reading plan that will guide them day by day through the scriptures. And I would encourage you, ask your MC leader if you need a recommendation for a Bible reading plan. There are so many great, helpful options out there. And I know that whoever you are gathering with can give some really helpful options if you're considering this tool. We don't have to wait till January 1st. No, start, that, uh, that is what was gonna be next. Year. My yeah. second recommendation was gonna be that you do not have to start at the beginning of the year. In fact, I encourage you to start tomorrow. Start this afternoon even and continue at whatever pace you desire until you've read every word that God has given us. A final note on reading through the Bible though, um, one of our church members recommended to me the CSB Chronological Bible. And I've looked at this and this seems like a really helpful resource because it actually breaks up the chapters day by day so you don't even need to find a reading plan. You open up to the day that you're supposed to read, it gives you the three or four chapters with some helpful commentary, and you just read through the Bible in an organized fashion that takes some of the guesswork out of it. Okay, let's move on to some additional resources. So laying the foundation with scripture is essential, but God in his gracious wisdom has allowed other people to contribute um, to help us understand God's word. So I have four categories here. Yeah. Free, family, other books for general reading, and then we'll close with a few that are slightly more academic in nature for those who may be interested. So for the category of free, the Bible Project actually offers really several well done animated videos about the Bible. They have made one for each book of the Bible, as well as videos for various topics, such as wisdom literature and how to read the parables. For every time I start studying a new book of the Bible, the Bible Project is the first place that I go. The second free resource I would recommend is the courses through the Gospel Coalition. So you can find these courses on their main website. And for understanding the big story, there are three courses that I would recommend. The first is called the God's Big Picture course. The second would be the Bible Basics course. And then the third would be the Story of Scriptures course. In addition to these three courses though, they have, I mean, probably upwards of a hundred different 
courses that are free courses that will take you through any book of the Bible that will take you through how to lead a women's ministry or how to do discipleship. And so this is a really rich resource that is free that I would encourage you to take a look at. The second category is resources for family. You mentioned one that I think many people in our church family are familiar with, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I know you already mentioned this, but I wanted to emphasize again that this is a book that is not only beautifully written and illustrated, but most importantly, at the end of every story, it connects it back to Jesus and the gospel. And so I think that a lot of us can agree. Maybe you're with people that have the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, I don't have, Ethan and I do not have children yet, but I'm around a lot of children in our church. And I've had the great privilege of reading some of these stories to the children. And I actually come away probably more encouraged than the child by being reminded of the truths of God's word and learning how to see Christ as Ron taught us today all throughout scripture. The second um, that I would, the second um, resource that I would recommend are two books, both written by Kevin DeYoung. The first is called The Biggest Story ABC. Those would be for younger children. And then the second and companion book to that is The Biggest Story, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. Mm -hmm. These books are also really well illustrated. And for the ABC book in particular, even as you have children that are really young, um, it takes every letter of the alphabet and traces God's redemptive story through the letters of the alphabet. And so I would encourage you to um, use these resources during bedtime, um, during story time, to be able to begin to help your children understand the glorious story of scripture. And then my, Can I interrupt yeah. you real quick? We, we have the, the young books, and I would challenge you on something. You said, we don't have kids yet, so we don't have this. <laughs> I don't think you need to have kids for this. I think the Jesus Storybook Bible and the, um, the two Kevin D. Young books you can read those without children. <laughs> and in fact, I think they offer great insights. That is such a good word. I We've begun to collect some children's books just for the children that come to our house, whether it's yeah. to gather. And I actually do find myself reading through them and being really encouraged by the, the breadth and depth of theological resources that mm -hmm. are written for children. But if you can communicate big theological truths to children, that is one really sure sign that you've understood the deep I, truths of God. I agree. Well said. My third and final resource for family would be one that actually Pastor John recommended um, that I include in this list. It's called Long Story Short by Marty Mikowski. And it's maybe for children that are a little bit older, but I know that we have families in our church that use it for family devotions. And it's another comprehensive resource to help mm -hmm. in family devotions take your family through the storyline of scripture. That's good. So for the next category, we have general reading books. So this would be if you are someone who either maybe does or does not have children or are just interested in um, learning the story of the Bible just through an easy to read book. And I have three recommendations for this. The first would be a book by David Murray called Jesus on Every Page, mm -hmm. 10 Simple Ways to Seek and Find Christ in the Old Testament. The second would be a really neat book by a man named Justin Buzzard, and it's called The Big Story, How the Bible Makes Sense Out of Life. And then the third book would be by a female Bible teacher that I really like named Nancy Guthrie, and she wrote a book called Even Better Than Eden, Nine Ways the Bible Story Changes Everything About Your Story. 
And then our final two resources are for those in our church family who may be a little bit more academic or after reading some of these books may want to go even deeper into their understanding of meta-narrative biblical theology. And so those two books, the first one is by a theologian named Graham Goldsworthy and his book is called According to Plan, The Unfolding Revelation of God in the Bible. And then the second um, academic book would be one by a man named T. Desmond Alexander, From Eden to the New Jerusalem, mm. An Introduction to Biblical Theology. So as we mentioned, all of these resources are going to be in the sermon email, and we hope that you would select a couple of these to read alongside scripture to help you really dig into what Ron shared with us today. That was great. And that's a lot of great resources. <laughs> it is a lot, and, yes. And how much do you get commission for each of those? Uh, order <laughs> There's on Amazon? none, no. All right. Lauren, thank you so much. Thanks really appreciate me. you. Appreciate your mind for the glory of God and your service for the glory of God. It's so Thanks, evident here at Pillar, and this is just one example. Thank you. Thanks, Pillar. Have a good week.